Welcome back to the Space Salvi Institute podcast. I'm Andrew Pettiprin with Bobby Mixa. Bobby, how are you? I'm good, Andrew. Um, I just fought my way back home. Traffic's horrible here in Krakow. Um, but that's a good thing because uh, Krakow is a walkable city. So, <laughs> But you don't live exactly in Krakow, so you have to deal with a little bit of commuting. A little bit of commuting, yeah. But uh, they've made over the last couple of years, they've really stressed that Krakow is a walkable city. So um, there's fewer and fewer roads to get into the city. So it basically makes traffic horrible. Uh, so the people inside the city, it's it's great for them. But if you're a little bit outside, it's it's quite a drag every day. So it goes, my goodness. <laughs> Well, today we're we're especially excited because we have our friend uh, James Matthew Wilson with us. We say our friend. We we were just bantering before we began recording that it was we that the three of us have only been in the same room one time, I believe, and it was for far too short a time. But uh, as uh, I'll talk about in a second, um, I, I feel I feel like James is kind of an old friend, actually, in a manner of speaking. So anyway, James Matthew Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm I'm great. I, you know, in a sense, I've known you your whole life, Andrew, because uh, I met you before you converted to the church. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> at least I've known you the whole time you've been a new creation. <laughs> you you are you're right. I mean, although I guess you know to quibble just slightly, I was baptized. Yeah. You know, yes, so I was yeah. I was not a stranger. I was not a total stranger to the to the uh, reality of of Christ and the church. But um, but yeah. yeah, actually, James, that's where I wanted to start because. Um, I remember, so this was back in the year 2017. As you say, I was not yet Roman Catholic. I was Anglican. The solution to all of our problems is that we all should be Platonists. And I said, I absolutely want to review that book. I want that book. So that book, I'm holding it up for those who can can see, is The Vision of the Soul, uh, which I think is just, just such an extraordinary book. And I was looking at it again uh, in preparation for talking today. And James, the thing that maybe I'll pitch it to you with, with this in mind, you know, here in this little venture that Bobby and I are, are embarking upon, the Space Salvi Institute, one of the things that we're trying to figure out is just what what story do we need to tell not only our countrymen in America, but also, you know, uh, friends and co-laborers in Europe who are, you know, still sort of trying to live amid the marks of of Western civilization, Christian civilization, and you know your book just says, does such a beautiful job reminding us in in a sense that um of course there's 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 the uh you know there's the old testament there's you know there's the gospels there's kind of you know all kinds of things in in the tradition but plato is so important to it all and in a sense like retelling the story of western civilization in some respects starts with plato so so much in your book and so much we want to talk about it, about your poetry and everything else. But tell us about the about your 2017 book, The Vision of the Soul, and just kind of the, the idea of, of propping up Plato the way that you do in that book. In in some ways, it's it's an odd book. In some ways that you for and for the same reason, uh it might be a very typical book, in that it's the book some people write books after they have uh attain mastery and understanding of something. But this was a book I wrote while trying to understand something. And what I was trying to understand was how it was that the modern age seemed so impoverished, and yet it was the case that despite any lamentable features of the modern age, that at any given moment, it is always possible to know the truth. Um, and so the the book, in some sense, tells the story of of that sort of slow pilgrimage I had of figuring out how it is that we could still uh, contemplate the truth in it, in all of its splendor and arrive at a a knowledge of it with uh, despite the fact that um, to on every side, it seemed as if uh, our culture and uh, and our major institutions of culture 
especially universities, had done so much to throw up barriers in the way. So uh, one of the things that I, I set out to do was, first of all, to just get an account of what the modern age looked like. And I just went to, you know, there's going back to my uh, high school years, and maybe not everybody gets this in their high school, but I can remember, uh, you know, being taught that uh, Darwin, Freud, and Nietzsche had shaped the modern era. And in some sense that that's true, and if you'd have to add other characters to that. So I just first went back to those writers and tried to see what was being left out of reality by their thought. And of course, what ends up getting left out, depending on which of those figures you're talking about, is any concept of truth as a stable, transcendent, and universal reality. Uh, any concept of the good that's anything more than a passing desire here and there. And above all, any concept of beauty as anything other than either a class prejudice or a momentary sentiment. Um, and so having sort of been able to see how truth, goodness, and beauty were excluded in various but often sy systematic ways among so much of modern thought, I just dove back into the tradition, as you say, uh, back into Plato, but really I come to Plato by way of Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle. And the reason that he's become such a central figure is uh, as any relatively patient survey of the Western tradition would, would, would tell us, it was through Plato that human beings began to understand themselves. Now, there are philosophers before Plato, and there are other ways of understanding oneself besides philosophy. Poetry, for instance, and theology as well, divine revelation. But Plato's anthropology, his understanding of what it meant to be human, and specifically the ordination of the soul to live a particular kind of life that will be fulfilled not in worldly terms, but in absolute terms, that vision of what it meant to be human that we get from Plato made possible a synthesis that drew deeply, especially of Holy Scripture, but also of the ongoing reflections of, of human beings across history, such that what we have, what is Western culture, is essentially a Christian Platonist civilization. That means not that... Uh, that the symposium is the foundational text for every person in the world uh, in a conscious way. It doesn't mean that Plato and Christianity stand on equal footing. They don't. It's rather that um, Plato mapped out in broad dimensions uh, a way of understanding the world and the vocabulary and the concepts he provided proved essential in human beings receiving the revelation of God uh, through Christ. And the synthesis of those two, the joining of this docile, subservient Plato and this revelatory uh, Christian testament uh, has shaped everything ever since, even those who have rebelled against it. It, it yeah. seems, Andrew, do you, you want to follow up? Because I'll, I'll... No, you go ahead, Bobby. No, no, I just, it seems everything that you just articulated there was exactly what um if you go back to the Regensburg address of Pope Benedict the 16th uh what he was trying to articulate and there's a line in the introduction of the, the vision of the soul that just says because you're articulating what conservatism is um where you just say I believe it's conservatism is um Christian Platonism and I've never really had it so simply put uh, for me, but it, it opened up when, when you're talking about conservatism too, most people seem to identify that as just kind of a political, um, you know, um, a political movement, um, even perhaps maybe throwing that into party politics. So delving this, uh, did you feel compelled writing this book though, um, to basically expand that notion of conservatism and return it to something like uh, understanding it as Christian Platonism? 
Yes. Well, you know, properly speaking, most of the time, the word conservative is better understood as a purely pl uh, political term, as you as you suggest. Um, but what I was trying to explore in the book was the very moment when that term conservative became salient, and that's in the aftermath of the French Revolution. Um, how does it become salient? Well, it becomes, it becomes a term eventually through the offices of a man who never used the word, uh, Edmund Burke. What Burke did was recoil in horror at the French Revolution. That was a political response. It was a response to a political event, I should say. But his understanding was that what was occurring with the French Revolution was a phenomenon that transcended the merely political. It was not one among many political events that one just has to chart within the history of politics. It was genuinely a revolution. It was an overturning of the world as it had been understood. And so in standing against the French Revolution, Burke was not merely standing or even primarily standing against one political action in a foreign country. What he was doing was recognizing that uh, a long-standing way of understanding the world and what it meant to be human was being cast out, cast aside, and a new one was, uh, was having its advent. And he saw this as destructive of every aspect of of human life, dignity, tradition, and culture. The way in which he went about that is really quite compelling. On the one hand, Burke was a political man. He was a lifelong pol politician. On the other hand, what he's appealing to, which admittedly shabby equipment, mostly because he's primarily a political man rather than a philosopher, but what he's appealing to with the equipment that's available to him is an understanding of what the human person, the world, and God are. And he articulates at a very fundamental level what those things are. So one of the tasks in this book was to look at Burke and to go back behind Burke and say, what's the deep tradition to which he's appealing, even if he doesn't even remember all of the aspects of it or all of the richness of it, which he certainly didn't, and to try to recover that for us. The reason I wanted to recover it for us is because is well, you know, I'm going to mention it for a reason that's that's very contemporary. Um, Pope Francis has, uh, you know, I know cannot pick up a pen or open his mouth without uh, igniting a firestorm. Uh, and one of the texts from his pontificate that certainly exasperated a few people was Laudato Si, his um, encyclical on the environment. What I find interesting about Laudato Si is that if you take the broad swath of the document, it's incredibly pessimistic. The change, the, the socioeconomic changes that it describes, it's usually decrying, and yet it also decries that they seem to be creeping and advancing with an inexorable necessity, as if the laws of technology necessarily directed themselves to an inevitable end and there was nothing to be done about it. And he means insistently at the technocratic level, there is nothing to be done about it. But in different passages across, scattered across the encyclical, almost like grains of rice, the only sign of hope that Pope Francis gives for this dire situation as it's described in the encyclical is the fact that human beings have souls non-material souls, and as such, are at any given moment open to what transcends them. We are open, of course, to divine revelation, but specifically, Pope Francis refers to our openness to truth with a capital T, goodness with a capital G, and beauty with a capital B. And this is what, um, in the great the great precedent for Laudato Si, is... Uh, is another in, in, encyclical, Ver, Veritatis Splendor, of John Paul II, where, as the philosopher Alistair McIntyre once put it, John Paul II made the argument that human beings are culture-transcending or history-transcending creatures of history and culture. What does that mean? It means that no matter what is going on outside our door, 
It even means no matter what's going on inside our hearts at this given moment, we have, because of our intellectual natures, always the capacity to transcend the horizon of history and to arrive in the presence of truth, goodness, and beauty. And I think Burke was, from a political stance, trying to defend that understanding of the human person, but also to defend it as the person as both in history, but also as born for something greater than history. In other words, a Christian understanding of what it means to be human. And he just lacked the some of the ready equipment to articulate that fully. And of course, he wouldn't have anyhow, because what he was writing was primarily a political document responding to the French Revolution. So in the vision of the soul, I wanted to just put myself back in the position of Burke and say, if I was not living in the heat of historical events as he was and had time for a cooler, calmer procedure, what would I want to say to my fellow human beings about who they are and what they're called to? And so in the book, that's what I try to offer. I try to understand, offer an account of the good, of the orientation of the human person to the contemplation of the divine beauty, which is our final and and absolute good. Uh, to understand truth itself, but specifically truth as both transcending history, but also as something we discover in history. And this is something people have a lot of problems with. And so, uh, because we tend to think that history is either relative or, and, and, and that truth is absolute and never the twain shall meet. And so in the final part of the vision of the soul, I talk about truth in its relation to narrative. And who's a great authority about the relationship of truth and narrative? None other than Plato, who supposedly <laughs> casts narrative out with poetry. But in fact, he's the greatest defender of storytelling and poetry that the world has ever known. Uh, and people were just too quick in their reading to appreciate it. And then finally, at the very center of the book is a, is a whole uh, extended discussion of beauty, which is the, the keystone word for the whole book as it is the keystone word for the whole Christian Platonist tradition. Why is that? And I'll, I'll finish up with this little reflection. When we hear the word beauty, we usually think of a subjective taste. And there are modern philosophical and historical reasons for why we might do that. But we all know that beauty, in fact, is not merely a subjective taste. I always used to tell people the story of, I was at a Red Sox game uh, in my early 20s, and I had forgotten my sunglasses and a hat. So I went down under the stands to buy a baseball cap from a vendor. And I asked the vendor if he had a cheap hat that I could buy. And he handed me uh, a pink Red Sox hat with a sort of acid wash jeans visor. And I said, no, I didn't mean an ugly hat. I meant a hat. And he said, well, it's ugly for you, but not being, might be nice for somebody else. But of course, everybody who would look at that hat would know that that's an ugly hat. And the person who likes that hat uh, has some work to do in their soul. Similarly, uh, this is going back to the years when my little kids were listening to pretty terrible music, uh, including the baby shark song. Um, if you were to approach someone, say at a cocktail party, and they were talking about music, and they were, I don't know, going back and forth, say about Mozart and Bach, and you interjected, well, those guys are fine, mind you, but I think that the greatest composition of all time is Baby Shark. Everyone <laughs> would back away in horror from you. Uh, no one would say, oh, tell me about that. Maybe you can convince me of this. No, <laughs> this is beyond uh, all uh, civilized opinion to say such a inane thing. So we know that there's something objective to beauty. And in fact, the first person who said beauty was subjective, Immanuel Kant, also knew that beauty was universal. So he may have thought that beauty resided in the eye of the beholder, as it were, but he thought everybody shared the same eyes, that by human nature, we would all agree on what was beautiful and what was not. But that's just not a good enough account. And so in the book, I go back to Plato, to Jacques Maritain, especially, who's the great interpreter of Thomas Aquinas on beauty. And, and drawing on their work, I restore for a contemporary reader an understanding of beauty that's not a subjective universal or a subjective relative quality in this in the human person, but beauty as a property of being. That is to say, along with truth and goodness, a dimension of reality that's simply built into the very fabric of existent things. Uh, 
And this is something that had, for understandable reasons, fallen out of favor for a couple hundred years. But it's something, in fact, that fundamentally we have to accept if we're to know anything at all about the world. Once we do that, we discover, as the Greeks, the ancient Greeks once appreciated, that beauty really is the linchpin that holds reality together. Beauty is the splendor of form. It's the splendor of truth. It's what makes truths worth knowing. Truth by itself is just a boring fact. Truth with beauty is a, rea is a mystery to contemplate. Uh, as Hans Ernst von Balthasar once put it, goodness is not self-evidently good. What makes the good self-evident in its desirability is the fact that beauty attaches itself to goodness intrinsically. It's the, it's the splendor or the glory that overflows from the fruitfulness of good things. And so, indeed, for instance, in Aristotle's The Ethics, when we ask ourselves, why do we want to become good human beings? The answer Aristotle gives us is, in so many words, for the beauty of it. It is beautiful to be good. And if it weren't beautiful to be good, it would not be clear to us why we want to be good. And so this aspect of beauty that's built into the fabric of being, the fabric of reality as such, is not a nice, incidental, sometimes intriguing aspect of everyday life. It's in fact the bedrock philosophical principle that makes being, truth, and goodness illuminative to us in the first place. And it, it, it orients and explains to us why these things are worth attending to. If you're gonna have that concept of beauty, it's, it's helpful to define it. And so one, one of the burdens of the vision of the soul was to provide a definition of, of beauty that would explain the role it's played historically and that it continues to play metaphysically in, uh, in human life and reality. Yeah. Something, James, that I, I took away from your book and, you know, your, your poetry too, for that matter, is uh, just as you said, I mean, beauty, beauty has a way of um, exposing the lie of relativism as well. Um, you know, I think you say in the book somewhere, something like um, relativism liquidates all stories or something like that, um, which which I, I've contemplated that a lot and just thought about the the truth the truth of that. You know, you say, so truth is both something transcendent of history, but something discoverable in history. I love the the part in in your book when you're talking about Ameritan and, and Aquinas. I, I forget if you say this or if I just implied this, but, you know, there's this sense that, like, there are there are more, not, not only, for example, are Mozart and Bach better than Baby Shark, but, I mean, Notre Dame in Paris is just, it just is more beautiful than than anything else or most other things. And therefore that time there was more truth in a sense. I mean, it was, it, you know, it was, it, it's fair to say that, you know, there, there are um, better times than other times. And that leads me in a rambling sort of way to a point that I wanted to ask you about, about modernism, because in a sense, like what you're saying is that conservatism or this like, you know this this platonic thing that we need to we need to appreciate is being born out again in the in the modern era but at the same time it's kind of condemning the modern era you know it's like it's sort of a product of modernity but also a critique of modernity and i really appreciate that in your work because i am very reluctant i have to admit to just condemn modernism i i, I just i am i don't you know i i I I'm too wedded to T.S. Eliot and to, uh, I don't know. I mean, just so many things. And so when I read your book, I was so refreshed that, you know, I don't have to throw everything out prior to, yeah. I don't know, prior to ancient times or whatever it may be, right? Well, it's amazing. Uh, the reason that Jacques Maritain had to write um, Art and Scholasticism, and he really had to write that book, mm -hmm. is because to make modernism make sense for the way most of its practitioners thought of it or intuited it, it required the philosophical vocabulary and the theological vo vocabulary of Aquinas. Um, they, they couldn't make sense to themselves. Now, what do I mean by that? So first of all, within modernism, uh, and the scholar Peter Gay talks about this and makes it the theme in his book on modernism, um, 
you know, one account of modernism is it's the triumph of subjective expressivity over all convention and form. Well, that's definitely true of some aspects of modernism. And I would say, in fact, the worst aspects of it. But that's not a global, that cannot possibly be a global account of modernism because uh, what a lot of the modernists were attempting to do and the most prominent in English, in poetry, Eliot and Pound, uh, in painting, Picasso, uh, 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 and Matisse, what they were all attempting to do was discover a, what they would have thought of as a renewed classicism. And in fact, often what was at stake in their work was specifically the the um, the far from the the relishing or fetishizing of the subjective. They generally were seeking to uh, to overcome the merely subjective, and to and to uh, demonstrate in art against figures like Nietzsche, Freud, and and even in a way Darwin. Um, that true perceptions of reality are possible, but that reality often doesn't look quite the way we're used to taking it. What uh, what effectively happened for most of those modernists is that the world began to look in a, in a very loose sense, like a Eucharistic mystery. That is to say, appearances, which the physical sciences could master, were deceiving, that the real thing worth seeing in the world was not what a microscope or a telescope or any other kind of, or a Geiger counter could measure. It was rather the inner mystery of form, the ontological secret, as Maritain called it. And so for a lot of the modernists, in order to assert the reality of a deeper vision of things, over against the triumph over appearances that had occurred through the physical sciences, they often disfigured the appearance of things in order to try to have a sort of outbreaking of a deeper reality. For Jacques Maritain, for instance, the great, um, the, the great exemplar of this was the artist Georges Rouault, whose, <laughs> whose paintings of, of the, um, the suffering Christ are primitive, almost cartoonish, uh, and yet reveal something of the man of sorrows and the and the redemptive suffering of Christ on the cross. And similarly, since you mentioned T.S. Eliot, uh, almost everybody's had some kind of encounter with the wasteland where they see this 433 line poem that just come that's just a big pile of fragments. It even it even confesses to being a pile of fragments. These these fragments I have shored against my ruins, one of the late lines runs. Um, but careful study reveals, if we're patient enough to listen to the poem, uh, and if we're willing to enter into the different fragments to see the holes of which they were once a part, which takes, a, a good maybe more patience than most of us, maybe even myself have, um, then we discover that Eliot is actually pro providing us a vision of the world that on the one hand has become fragmented and chaos, the, and chaos, the centrifugal forces of history have spun everything up in sort of almost atonic, atomic dissolution. And yet in that circular motion, we can see intelligible patterns such that history itself is a form, not, no, not so much a story for Eliot, but a form that makes sense. And by entering into the contemplation of that imminent form of history, we begin to gain some kind of knowledge or wisdom about what transcends that history and governs it. And so, indeed, on the surface, it's a pretty ugly poem. It's only in contemplating or entering into the depths of the poem, into the splendor of the form of the poem, that we really begin to encounter uh, a vision of wholeness uh, and, a, and have an encounter with truth that's, that's genuinely uh, redemptive. It eventually redeemed Eliot. Five years later, he converted to Christianity. And he did have to be baptized, Andrew, because he was raised Unitarian. Um, just one more note on that, though. I'm, I'm very sympathetic with what the modernists were doing because they were responding to what they saw as a superficial understanding of art and beauty that had been that had come out of a very superficial metaphysics of, of what most people call scientism or positivism. The idea that 
scientific measurements cover account for everything. And so at that time and place, the, the response they made was reasonable. But in art and scholasticism, Jacques Maritain attacks the French uh, painter Bougereau. And Bougereau is just an absolutely stunning painter. And, but Maritain insisted that there was no inspiration, that he was a trivial artist in comparison to, say, the, the, the relatively primitive uh, piano compositions of Eric Satie. Maritain was so invested in the Eucharistic eruption of the splendor of beauty from within the otherwise unimpressive appearance of things, that, uh, which I think, again, was under the circumstances a relatively justified moment in the history of art, uh, that it blinded him in part to what really all human beings have always known and what we will always deep down know. And that is one of the great mysteries of beauty is the way in which beauty both glistens on the surface of things, but also speaks of the interior mystery of things. And that the most perfect beauty will always be involve a unity in duality of both the depths and the form or the appearance. And, and I think uh, in our age where a impoverished account of modernism has done so much damage to uh, our culture, where most modernist works or postmodernists in our day are not disfiguring surfaces in order to reveal the depths to us, they're disfiguring surfaces to show us that there are no depths. Mm. And, and, you know, that's an awful event. I mean, that's that's why Philip Reef called the modern age an anti-culture. It's not a culture. It's an anti-culture. It's trying to evacuate, to eviscerate culture in order to show us that there's nothing there to admire. I, I think the time has come long since for us to recover that more classical understanding of beauty that is the the splendid unity of form uh and and depth or appearance and depth uh and that's uh what i think the rebirth of poetic form the rebirth of um of representative art uh the rebirth of classical architecture and renewed sacred architecture in our day i was just in florida with duncan stroik last week and was talking with him about these things of course he's the great sacred architect of our day um uh that's that's our present task in our age is to recover that unified understanding of beauty that um, Maritain did not quite appreciate. Mm. Bill, you know, today I was uh, taking a walk and I went into the Basilica of St. Francis of Assisi. And there you have, um, I mean, it's, it's quite lovely, lovely Basilica. And um, Bishpansky, uh, Stanislav Vyshpansky was part of the Young Poland movement, was the one who, who painted um, all of all the walls of the church. And so what you have, though, in, in this church is this kind of almost the, the, the colors are so powerful um, that, I mean, you, you just have this sense that the color itself is 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 praising, is part of the praise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was thinking when I was in there, because I'll be honest, uh, James, I was listening to your talk in which you mentioned Rothko, and mm. I was I was thinking, just contemplating, like um, I was I was right in front of this great wall in which the it was pre- predominantly green, and then there was another that was predominantly orange, um, with maybe different shades here and there, and I was thinking, wow, just to contemplate or to wonder at color. Is is so powerful. And I was thinking of the Rothko because I've been to, um, I I used to kind of laugh at some of this stuff as a young man, but I have to admit that standing in front of a Rothko painting is almost like standing in front of an icon, uh, in which you feel like the the imminence of the of the, the color that's just right there in front of you in some ways is is showing you the goodness of itself, but also takes you beyond itself to something else. Yeah, it, yeah, Rothko is a great example because I do think that his work is intended to be iconic. Uh, I think in general, the form of it lends itself to such an interpretation. Uh, 
not to dampen your spirits though, uh, but, uh, you know, I teach at the university of St. Thomas in, in Houston. Um, and though I'm, I was going to mention <laughs> work, uh, remotely. Uh, so I'm here in Grand Rapids, Michigan right now, but I'm often, I'm in Houston often enough. And right by our campus is the, the famous Rothko chapel. And after years of uh, being able to appreciate Rothko in small doses, uh, I took, I went with some friends over to the chapel and sat down for a while. And first of all, that's not Rothko does best. The canvases are basically just painted black. Uh, there's very little on them. I was impressed by the way the light from that was coming in from a sunlight in the ceiling moved across the canvases. It did give them some life and interest. But for the most part, it was pretty dismal and abyssal. And in fact, at one point, I moved over away from where the, the crowd of people who were in there were to one of the canvases on the side of the chapel. I said, I'm going to try to pray before this thing. <laughs> Not pray to Rothko, but just pray to God using the can with the canvas as an iconic accessory to prayer. And, uh, and I almost immediately stopped and said, no, it's time to leave. I think I think there is a um, the 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 cost of modernism was a very high price to pay, even though it made it did clarify and gain quite a few things for us. Uh, but I want I want to go back to your statement for just one second because that's really a terrific one. And when Thomas Aquinas tried to explain claritas, the the third of three principles of beauty, there's integritas, consonantias, and uh, claritas. He he tells us claritas, you know, the way people like bright colors and light, which is true. He doesn't mean that's all that claritas is, although that's one form of it. But that's our first clue as to what claritas is. That is to say, uh, whether it's Matisse or one of my kids, if they cover a sheet in brilliantly colored crayons and there are powerful blues and, you know, robust reds. I'm going to look with fascination, even on this little, you know, crayon scribbling, um, because the color shines out with a beauty. And what Thomas Aquinas is trying to explain to us is that that shining out of color for the, for the delight of the eye is the first clue that we have that all of reality, every existent form has the capacity to disclose the depths of its being. And so we should be taking delight even in simple colors, whether in a church, in a crayon drawing, or on certain occasions, even a Rothko canvas, um, because that's actually the first clue that our intellects, which is what's really savoring and delighting in these things, not the eye by itself, is actually called to the contemplation of a brilliance that infinitely transcends anything we could see with the physical eye. And that ultimately is the glory of God. Yeah. Yeah, I've 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 always had kind of mixed feelings about Rothko, and I I, I appreciate what both of you have just said. I, I uh, I'm going to reapproach him with with both of your uh, both of your thoughts in mind. Um, you know, I I do wonder if like you know modernism had to kind of get to that point and then and then go a little beyond for us to then really feel like oh okay now we gotta now we gotta kind of come back to I don't know come back to something else. Um, and maybe that's a good segue to talk about your poetry a little bit, James, um, sure. because you you write in traditional forms. Um, but have you always did you did you dabble in in other kind of types of poetry before you settled on a kind of more traditional style? No, uh, not at all. <laughs> uh, first of all, because I started as a as a fiction writer, as writing short stories and novels. So what intrigued me about poetry to begin with was the one thing that poetry has or can have uh, that prose fiction doesn't, and that is meter and then rhyme. So it was meter and rhyme that first drew me to it. I was just amazed by what happens when you take even the plainest sentence and organize its rhythm so that there's a, a mathematical substructure that's holding this otherwise just fluent contemporary speech together. Uh, it's, it's that clue that, um, you know, that form, that beauty is form and splendor. It's the splendor of form, or sorry, splendor or a principle of order shining out from this particular form here. Even in the line of iambic pentameter, we can hear that, you know, the most famous line in 
in our in our poetry is to be or not to be that is the question why is it that that line should have such power for us it's not just its meaning though its meaning is there and significant this great question of what's the point of existence it's also the fact that shakespeare's organizing his syllables in to conform with the iambic pentameter movement which makes it at once memorable therefore easy for actors to memorize and perform in the theater but also memorable for us who hear it and therefore meter is that kind of quality of speech um that testifies to what everybody would assume poetry is supposed to be for the in the first place which is memorable speech the kind of the, the organize, organization of language so that it's something worth remembering yeah, that's helpful. And uh, maybe I could just follow up and Bobby, you might want to jump in too. I uh, just, again, just as a way to prepare, I was looking at uh, your your poem, The River of the Immaculate Conception, which I'm holding up for uh, for those who are viewing. And uh, James, I, I think that that is just a, a magnificent poem. And I really hope that more and more people take it up. I mean, to me, the thing that that really strikes me I might even read a stanza or two to you and, and see what you think about it. But in fact, let me do that, if you don't mind. I'm going to read a stanza that um, I loved your section called Section 5, Gloriosa Dicta Sunt De Te. I love that section. And the thing that I love about it, I'll say before I read the stanza, is, you know, Bobby and I, again, in this little venture that we're, that we're doing with the Space Albi Institute, we're very interested in this idea of place. Um, I, as an American, feel... Um, very out of place in a lot of ways. I grew up in a lot of different places. I, I'm not really from anywhere in a strange way. And I, I wish I was. And so I I find now as a man in middle age, I and somebody who learned European languages and stuff like that, I find myself like sort of longing for some ancestral home in Europe where kind of my my faith and my people come from and all that sort of thing. And yet knowing like all four of my grandparents were born in the United States. I'm I'm an American. My kids are going to have American accents their whole lives. Like that's that's our reality. So like, where are we then? And like, what you know, what do we do? Like, how do we understand our history and and our place, even if we've sort of grown up in this sort of awful, you know, uh, awful bouncing around like I have. So anyway, let me read this stanza and, and let me throw it to you. You say this in the second stanza. You say, how much less often do we think of land? not as the stuff laying idle to be grabbed, but as a stage, a platform where we stand, not empty, for upon it we depend, not arbitrary, for it's all been formed so long before our dawning that we sense a hundred histories have gone to dust, deepening the hillsides, carving out its rivers. How rarely do we think of it as place, as scene where destinies are shaped by grace. That's that's just extraordinary stuff. And I wonder, you know, you say you're back in you you've lived elsewhere, but you're back in Michigan, where I, I believe you're from. And I don't know, just I wonder if you could just reflect on this this great poem and maybe that stands in particular and just this idea of place and culture. Yeah. So thanks for that question. So the river of the backyard conception, I've got it here too. Um it was it was conceived with to serve, you might say, two entirely intertwined purposes. It's both a liturgical poem and a historical poem. So it's short, it's too short to call it an epic poem, but it, like most epics, it has a historical dimension to it. But like most lyric poems, it also has a liturgical form to it. And uh, and that's, to say the least, is no accident. The, the poem was written as a response to Frank LaRocca's great composition, The Mass of the Americas, when I was present the first time that mass was was said and performed. And what Frank was doing was drawing together the Feast of the Immaculate Conception and also the feast which followed shortly thereafter, the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Feast of the Immaculate Conception, of course, is the, is the feast that begins the universal redemption of mankind, the redemption of our souls so that they become fit for eternity. The Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, on the other hand, has a much more particular and historical meaning. It was the great apparition where the Blessed Virgin Mary showed to the Aztec people that they were called to the Christian life. But also, and perhaps in a sense, even more importantly, it showed to the European Christian people, the Spanish, that they were called to Christian brotherhood with the native people there. 
And so it's the moment where the evangelization of the North American continent, the evangelization of the Americas, in a sense, really begins and begins in earnest. And so one of the aspects of this poem was to retell that history that begins with the apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe and continues up through the present to evangelize the people of this continent. What's essential to understand is that though there are so many aspects of conquest and rapine in American history from the Spanish conquest originally to the settlement in New England and even uh, especially later within uh, the, the French settlements in Canada, that the first, some among the earliest movements, among the earliest events of American history are acts of evangelization, missionary events, acts of em embracing others and drawing them into the universal church. And so that's a longer story. It's a less well-known story than, say, Washington crossing the Delaware. But it's, of course, of infinitely greater importance because it's a historical event that will resonate for all eternity. So this poem, I wanted to capture that. I, I tell the stories of Juan Diego, of Father Marquette going down the Mississippi and of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. And then punctuated there, there are other stories, but it's also... I also tried to give, the, as I said, the poem a seven-part liturgical form where it follows the course of the Mass and arrives at that recognition that the Mass reminds us of that every moment of our lives here in this world is at least analogously akin to the moments we spend at Mass where heaven literally opens up and enters into the church and makes itself present here in the world. And we here in the world make ourselves within the liturgy present in the cosmic liturgy of the angels and saints circling God in heaven. And so that history, the history of timeless moments taking place in time to warp a phrase from T.S. Eliot was one of the stories I wanted to tell. And just to go back to that stanza that you just read, and thank you for reading that because it's actually one of my favorites. Um, when we have that understanding of history, we realize that history is not so much the story of our actions as it is the story of God's grace operating in the world. And very often, our only participation in it is to bear witness to it, uh, which is what, of course, martyrs do. They bear witness to the faith, not by acting, but by being acted upon. And it's what evangelists do, including Father Marquette, whose story I retell in the poem, who, uh, you know, in terms of physical action, he got in a canoe and sought out the Mississippi River and went down the Mississippi River a few hundred miles. Uh, but in terms of his effect, as he went, he stopped at each of those, at, at myriad in, uh, Indian villages, and was oftentimes the first person ever to proclaim the salvation of Christ to those people. And that, that one stanza actually is alluding to Father Marquette because in the narrative portion of the poem, I mentioned that uh, one of the ways Father Marquette evangelized the Indians was to stage plays retelling the biblical events. Yeah, on a stage, uh, the stage of the land, yeah. You know, growing up on the, the kind of south side of Chicago, um, I remember as a child, I used to go sledding on this. Uh, it was um, right by, uh, we used to call it Swallow Cliff. I think it's, yeah, Swallow Cliff. And I remember as a kid, a great hill there. I was uh, walking around and they had this chapel there. And I read about Father Marquette for the first time. And I, I, was, I felt like, okay, it's like back in the 1600s, I believe it was the 1600s, okay, that this missionary, and then I, with Joliet, and they came to this region, I felt like there was, there was like some, some depth in, in actually the land. And just learning about, you know, because you, you didn't really get much of that history uh, growing up, uh, but to learn about that whole region, that there were missionaries before 
was just so so um so amazing to me and he he died right in in michigan there as well right yeah yeah if i if i get in the car right now i can be at the marquette cross which is on the shores of ludington michigan uh where he where he died he pulled the canoe he paddled the canoe over to shore with his two companions he said i i think i'm done and he laid down on the shore and, and passed away in ludington and then we can go up to the upper peninsula to saint ignace uh, right across the Mackinac Bridge in the Upper Peninsula, and there you'll find the Father Marquette Church where his mission was. And there's uh, one of the villages he visited in Illinois, and I'm forgetting the name of it now, though it's mentioned in this poem. Um, uh, where he set up that mission uh, with the Indians, there's there's a church there now, <laughs> and it's still an active parish. This is all... to... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I, actually, I don't. I, I wish I had that. All of my books are still. Uh, I have so many books in America, and then one of them is that that poem. But I, I wish I had that because it is so. To think of America in these terms is uh, with the kind of like these Catholic roots of just going way back. Um, is is really important today, and it's it's great to have more and more historians writing about this. It's kind of reshaped the imagination. Yeah, one of the inspirations for this poem, the poem is, is dedicated to Frank LaRocca, but also to the memory of the uh, great American historian, Kevin Starr, who died, um, uh, oh, I think, I want to say a year before uh, before I wrote the poem. And in fact, I had just finished the poem and was in California for, it was the Benedict the Sixteenth Institute that had commissioned the poem. And I was back in California for a Benedict, Benedict the Sixteenth Institute event, and was at uh, Archbishop Cordiglione's residence for dinner, and we all went into a chapel to sing vespers. And as I sat down uh, on a bench, I didn't know anybody there um, previously. I sat down on a bench, and an older woman started talking to me. She said, "My husband would have really liked you." I said, "Oh." Thank you. And we talked about my poem and et cetera for a little bit. And I got up and then we sang Vespers and got up and went to dinner. And and that was the end of it. Uh, I think it was the next day I learned that that was Kevin Starr's widow. Mm -hmm. And I, so I was really blessed to mm -hmm. to get, as it were, his endorsement of, uh, of the poem in, in that sort of almost miraculous way. Uh, but what, what Kevin wanted to do and he was thwarted by death in the completion of this task, was to write a trilogy that would give a full account of Catholics in the Americas. And he, he completed the first volume, Continental Ambitions, which takes you through the 17th century. It's a beautiful story. Uh, it's a huge book. And, that's, and it begins with the, set, the first settlement of Greenland. So that should just be our first clue <laughs> that the story of Catholics in the Americas is a much longer, older and more complicated story than just, I don't know, uh, Irish immigrants coming over in the late 19th century. Right. And that America isn't, you know, people talk about America being an idea or, you know, founded on, you know, it, almost like it's sort of a, a th just a theory put into practice or something, which I suppose in some ways it is. But I mean, it also is a country, a land where yes. Catholics came and proclaimed the lordship of christ right where like the 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 flag was planted like i mean that's that's real that's like the real story of america it seems to me yes yeah the um the, the in the first stanza of that poem you recited um uh uh it's sort of a response to robert frost's sort of pioneer vision in fact some of the phrasing is specifically imitating frost's terse pentameter style um so to make that you know clear to the reader that i'm engaging in an argument with frost but um uh you know frost was such a great writer in, in many ways and, and if, if, in fact one of the ways in which he was a great writer is precisely because of his appreciation of place uh and his seeking a, a habitat to dwell um but i think for a lot of americans that it's place in a meaningful sense, in the concrete sense, is often treated as a matter of indifference. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that's, you know, I think that's a, a grave mistake. Um, the, uh, uh, piety towards the, the specific place where you're born and where you're from, uh, piety towards the everyday goodness of things around you, uh, the piety that expresses itself primarily in paying attention and saying thank you. Uh, these are things that can't be done very well in at the level of universal abstractions. They really do have to be incarnate. And we live more poorly when, uh, when that dimension, the incarnate dimension of things is denied to us. Yeah. Well, we're running short on time, but I think Bobby wanted to ask you about your your latest book. Yeah. No, I was, I was really, um, I've actually I've to put it in an order for the book. So I have to just admit I haven't read it yet. Um, but I'm actually really, really intrigued by the little that I have read about the book um, in which you engage uh, modernism and the avant-garde with writers such as, uh, I believe it's Brian Coffey, um, Douglas. Um, Dennis Devlin. Oh, yes. And who was the last? And Thomas McGreevy. I'll hold the book up. I have it here. So. Yes. Um, and I was reading a little bit more about uh, Brian, Brian Coffey, which it, it just fascinates me. I didn't know. I mean, I went to St. Louis University and oh. they make a lot out of um, having um, Marshall McLuhan and all of that there. But I didn't know that Brian Coffey was there as well, writing for the modern schoolmen. Um, but if you could say like a little bit, I read that a lot of them, uh, especially Brian Kofi, had to return to Europe. Um, and there was, was there something about Europe and the kind of continental Europe as well uh, that was really, really important to him for his Catholicism? And maybe if maybe if you could say something too, if, if that's in the right direction for all of those authors and also kind of the, the modernist the, I mean, modern uh, movement as well. Yeah, so this is this was a, a complicated story to tell in this book. In brief, Coffey, Devlin, and McGreevy are poets who are best remembered in Ireland because they were open to continental, especially French modernist literary practices. Um, three of the greatest of modern writers, Beckett, but even way better than him, Joyce, and then way better than him, Yeats, uh, all, all Nobel Prize winners, uh, you know, are the sort of definitive modern figures in, in, in literature. But that can, uh, for an American such as myself, that can might lead you to mistake Ireland for, in general, being uh, a very modernist literary milieu. In fact, Joyce left Ireland in order to do the kind of work he wanted to do. Uh, Beckett as well. Um, uh, Yates stayed home, but he was, you know, when he was out in the yard, the parents called their kids in to keep them safe. So it was just, they, they know none of them quite fit in in Ireland. Um, so most, most of the Irish literary tradition was, was very much uh, tethered to the movement for national independence. And so, uh, it was very nationalistic in substance. And then after the successful war for independence, but the sort of disappointing aftermath as Ireland sort of stumbled into stagnation, um, most of the literature remained consumed by the national question. And so for quite a few Irish scholars, these three figures stood out precisely because they seemed to speak from a wider horizon, what they would call a more international horizon, than the average Irish writer did. And that's true, but the reason they're international is not because, or not primarily because they were paying attention to what was going on in Paris in the 1920s and 30s. To the contrary, it's because they were one of the few Irish, they were among the very few Irish writers who were not only faithful, but genuinely devout Catholics. And each of them was steeped in the philosophy and theology of the Catholic Church. Coffey, for instance, studied, wrote, you know, wrote his doctorate under Jacques Maritain at the Catholic University of Paris. And so in each of their life stories, we see not so much this cosmopolitan, globe-trotting Irishman, although they were those things in some ways. Uh, what we see are uh, a serious Augustinian, a serious Thomist, and in Dennis Devlin's case, a serious disciple of Pascal, 
bringing Catholic theology into literary modernism. And for a reason that I actually mentioned early in our discussion, they saw that that modernist literary practices were Eucharistic. And so they mm -hmm. saw that that uh, the modernist practices that were not in any way Christian or Catholic or religious at all, uh, intrinsically, actually cr created a kind of technology that would allow them to express uh, the sacred in a specifically incarnate kind of way, a specifically Eucharistic kind of way. And so what makes them unique figures, on you know, rare figures anyhow, is that they were Irish writers who not only knew, but had in the depths of their bones, the Catholic intellectual tradition, and they deployed it in their in their modernist work. Coffee, you know, one other thing I'll say, just because you mentioned St. Louis University, is uh, they all three of them spent a portion of their lives outside of Ireland, in fact, a good portion of their lives, uh, but none of, neither of, none of them wanted to. Devlin was in the diplomatic corps, so he was globetrotting like a good diplomat, and he was in the United States during the Second World War, for instance, where he met many of the leading American poets of the day, Alan Tate and Robert Penn Warren, for instance. Um, uh, Coffee was, you know, in some ways had a kind of unfortunate life. He just sort of faced defeat in almost every direction his life took. And so when he was finally able, after being delayed by the Second World War, to defend his dissertation on, on the idea of order in Thomas Aquinas, he was then hired by St. Louis University. And he moved with his seven kids. They'd have nine before they left America. They moved with his wife and seven kids to, uh, uh, was it Hot Spring, um, uh, right outside um, St. Louis, and they moved to an old bootlegger's cabin, and he began redoing the cabin and fixing up the barn, and uh, he lived a very, very much kind of a what we would call an agrarian uh, way of life with his family out in the countryside, and he was teaching philosophy during the day at St. Louis and was helping to edit the modern schoolmen, um, and uh he had, his best poems are about that period in his life because he really felt in his bones um, the, uh, the, the, the life of the land. And he felt a, a, a deep connection to the land around St. Louis because so many Irish had immigrated there in the 19th century. So he didn't feel as if he was in exile exactly. He felt actually quite at home. And they tried to stay in St. Louis uh, permanently even though in a flash of very Irish anger, Brian mm -hmm. Coffey got upset with his salary at the university and resigned his position. And so eventually he was forced <laughs> to leave and they moved back to the United Kingdom where he taught math for the rest of his life. Hmm. And James, what is the what is the title of the book for those who didn't who, who aren't uh, watching and just listening? Sure. This, so this is Catholic Modernism and the Irish Avant-Garde, the achievement of Brian Coffey, Dennis Devlin and Thomas McGreevy. I'll say, you know, in contradistinction from The Vision of the Soul, Vision of the Soul was a book written for everybody. And I know it's it, it, it can be tough sledding in some places, but it's it's generally addressed to a general reader. This is a book that uh, was, was written uh, as a contribution to the scholarship because these three poets have not been adequately treated up till now. And I want it to be as, I took 12 years writing the book. I want it to be completely exhaustive and to really tell their life and work story the way it needed to be told and maybe you know in a certain sense to be the last word on the subject mm -hmm. um as i was writing it though i must confess i i found that though it was a book intended for scholars i began to think more and more that this is a book that a lot of people would appreciate because it does provide along the way uh i think a very helpful introduction to saint augustine and the city of god an introduction to the it it, it actually retells the life story of Jacques Maritain alongside Brian Coffey's because their lives were parallel in some respects, although Maritain always went from strength to strength and Coffey from failure to failure. Uh, and then uh, same with uh, Dennis Devlin. Um, his poetry is you know worth studying for its own sake, but I think a lot of readers will appreciate learning how the triangle or the triad, you might say, of Montaigne and Descartes and Blaise Pascal uh, shaped modern French culture and then through French culture shaped Dennis Devlin's poetry. 
So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually hopeful that this book will will be uh, a contribution to our broader understanding of the liveliness of the church's theology in the 20th century and how, uh, you know, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and Blaise Pascal are not of interest merely, of, not of merely historical interest, but will be of interest to contemporary readers who want, you know, among other things, to have their souls saved. Wow. Absolutely. Well, that sounds like a wonderful reason to get the book. I'm going to get it. Um, on that note, James, we're uh, we're out of time, but what a what a delight to have a chance to pick your brain a little bit today. I know that our, our listeners will have been greatly edified by your words, and uh, we hope we can do it again soon. Thank you. Terrific. All right. Great to spend this time with you.